0: On this edition of the program, a Michigan breakdown, a Super Tuesday preview, and what do we mean when we say the term war crimes? We go over that with Ryan Macbeth. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Bow Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, V and Craig. everybody to the politics 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 program for march 1st 2024 your old pal justin robert young joining you here on the program and we're going to look in our rear view for a little bit when it comes to michigan we're going to look ahead to super tuesday i'm not going to spend a ton of time on trump in michigan it was around about where we thought it was going to be. There was, there was not a lot of polling in Michigan. Trump was a little bit under the polling that was there. But again, this is theoretically still a competitive primary. And I I don't know exactly how much time I want to spend on the, is Donald Trump underperforming his polls in a primary that's kind of happening, but kind of not happening. Discourse, Uh, I don't really know what it tells us. Polling that happens for the general election tends to be more predictive than primaries. Primary polls can be a lot more noisy than the other side. And right now we're in this weird mushy middle where obviously Donald Trump is the pick from the Republican Party. There's not really much of a case to say anything otherwise, but Nikki Haley is still in the race. There still are a lot of Republicans that are going to be need to convince to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump by November. History tends to say that they will. So I'm not going to go too deeply into it. What what I am going to go more deeply into is something that's gotten a lot of time in our conversation and that is Joe Biden versus uncommitted. If you're unfamiliar with this, Listen to Michigan is a group that organized people around the state of Michigan for this primary that is in the general term of the way that we talk about it, non-competitive, meaning that Joe Biden doesn't have a serious competitor He is his party's pick. These primaries and caucuses are really only just to go through the motions so he can have the delegates so he can go to the convention because we built a primary system that is strong enough that you have to go through these processes. But because Listen to Michigan is unsatisfied with how Joe Biden has handled the war in Gaza, They wanted to send a message. Now, I think it's really, really important that we do look at Uncommitted and the Haley campaign in the same vein here. Or at least compare them against each other. As far as I know, Listen to Michigan did not have any official television ads. They had a lot of people on television. They had a strong social media presence. And obviously there is an outlet of people, especially in places like Dearborn, Michigan, with a very, very high Arab American population that are very upset that Joe Biden has not called for a full and complete ceasefire in Gaza. And or depending on who you talk to released forced Israel to release political prisoners. So let's look at the raw numbers here. In the Democratic primary this Tuesday, as I am recording this on on Wednesday, these numbers might have changed a little bit, but I think that they're directionally correct by the time that you listen to this. Uncommitted notched 101,000 votes, technically 101,067 votes. Marianne Williamson got 22,696 Dean Phillips got 20,454. By the way, Dean Phillips was technically still running in this race. Marianne Williams was not. She gets more votes and now she has unsuspended her campaign. So there's that. I'm going to tally all of those up and say those are all Joe Biden protest votes. Into 144,217 people that are unsatisfied with Joe Biden. People that Joe Biden will have to convince to hold their nose for him when November comes. Let's flip that onto the Republican side of the ledger. Nikki Haley got 294,817 votes. Uncommitted on that side got 33,397 votes. That is 328,214. Nikki Haley does have an active campaign. She is theoretically the closest thing to a competitor to Donald Trump that exists right now. And so that means the entire Joe Biden protest vote got a little under half what the protest vote was against Donald Trump. Now I'm going to underline here again, for anybody that might get mad for any different reason, That I do think history suggests the vast majority of all those people that did not vote as well as, or did not vote for either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, history suggests that they will probably come home by November, as will a bunch of people who didn't vote in Michigan. But if we are analyzing whether or not the Listen to Michigan campaign was successful, we need to compare the uncommitted vote to past uncommitted votes. All right? So in the primary on Tuesday, Joe Biden got how many votes? Joe Biden got 623,415 votes. In 2020, Joe Biden beats Bernie Sanders in a very competitive campaign to the tune of 840,000 votes to Bernie Sanders, 567 or 76. So Joe Biden in this election got more votes than Bernie Sanders got four years ago in a non-competitive primary. In that election... Uncommitted got 19,106. So we're going to go ahead and assume that that is a rolling baseline for people without a competitive strategy behind it, right? It's similar in 2016. Uncommitted on the Democratic side got 21,601. And in 2012, a similar number there, 20,833. Now, here's where I think that there's a little bit of spin going on. Because something that folks will say, Biden supporters will say, is that the uncommitted push was a media hyped failure. Joe Biden still got 81% of the vote. And that's absolutely true. But one of the things that you will hear them say is that the uncommitted vote this year got only half, less than half of what it got in 2008. And so you start scratching your head. Well, hold on. Oh, geez. You know, 238,168 votes in 2008. Why is that the case? What was going on in 2008? The people were so mad at the Democratic Party. They wanted to send such a message. Well, here's the reality of what happened. In 2008, Michigan and Florida tried to move their contests further up into the calendar. They did this without the permission of the Democratic National Committee. And they were punished by the Democratic National Committee. So much like what happened with New Hampshire this year. But in that race, Hillary Clinton was on the ballot. And young Senator Barack Obama was not. That meant that the that near quarter million vote tally was intermingled with the way That people would show support for Obama. If you ask me, that means that that number should probably be thrown out. It is really not in any way a comparison to what we saw in Michigan. There were two non-presidents. It was a competitive primary. It was a total cluster because of the, the schedule jumping and everything. So I tend to think that that is a cherry pick stat that folks who want to minimize the Listen to Michigan campaign are throwing out there. That's just my two cents. To give you a sense of where Uncommitted was before that, in 2004, it got 497 votes. So you can make the argument that 2008 was the first time that Michiganders... Really even knew that that was an option, let alone knew that it was an option for sending a political message. And that's my thoughts on Michigan. Not a lot of thoughts on Michigan, but I did find the uncommitted number interesting. So that's looking in the past. Let's go ahead and look ahead because March 5th is Super Tuesday. Doot, 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 doot. On Super Tuesday, on the Republican side, a combined 874 delegates, that is 72% of the 1,215 needed to earn the majority and clinch the GOP nomination will be up for grabs. This is the lion's share of delegates. An analysis for by Henry Olson of The Telegraph. Haley remains in the race, but you can't possibly win the majority of delegates at this point. Many states voting on or before Super Tuesday will award all or most of their delegates to the candidate who gets 50% or more of the vote. That means that she will be effectively locked out of delegate-rich California and Texas and will likely get no delegates in Idaho, Alabama, and Oklahoma. That alone would get Trump roughly 500 of the 1,000 215 delegates he needs to prevail and he'll easily garner the rest over the next two weeks. That's what the Trump campaign said last week that this was all over but the crying and it's largely because Nikki Haley is going to be far outpaced on Super Tuesday and it's going to be only a week or two after that when Trump will likely take the rest. So I'm going to give you the state of the polling for everything. Just to show you how steep a climb this is for Nikki. States without polling since the beginning of the year. So we're going to ignore these states. Alaska, Arkansas, Colorado. All right. We don't need those. Get out of here. Afuera. We're just going to go one by one here. Alabama. It's only one poll. Trump's up by 75 points. California. Real clear politics average on that is 71.3. He has not placed under 50 percent in any of the polls. His RCP average is a lead of 52 percent. The main Republican presidential primary, Trump up 50. Massachusetts. Hey, look at this. Look at this. In Massachusetts. There's two polls, a Suffolk University and a morning consult poll. The morning consult poll has him up 41. The Suffolk University poll has him up 17. Tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off. Still not a Haley win, at least on polling. Utah, one poll that has Trump up 27. North Carolina, again, just a little bit north of South Carolina, where Haley already lost by 20 in this the real clear politics average has Trump at 72 his lead is 54. Oklahoma Trump's lead is 77 Tennessee Trump lead 70. Texas Trump's lead is 70. Vermont Trump's lead is 30 and in Virginia Trump's lead is 70. Most people assume that Nikki Haley is going to drop out on Super Tuesday. And I believe that that's probably going to be the case. At a certain point, even if you're fighting the good fight, you begin to look unserious if you just keep catching ass whipping after ass whipping after ass whipping. She lost by 20 points in her home state. She lost by 30 in Michigan. And she is going to be locked out of all delegates in California and Texas. That is the fat lady singing. You can wait until the song is done two weeks from then when she has mathematically no chance of getting it. When Donald Trump officially becomes the guy. But realistically, it's over. Then again, realistically, it's been over for a while. Nikki Haley's campaign is the Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Tis but a flesh wound. What's the Nikki Haley campaign gonna do to the Trump campaign? Bleed on it? The end of the day, the only real drama is whether or not Nikki Haley is going to endorse Trump on stage. Or not. My bet is, or not. But there's not really much drama on whether or not Nikki Haley 2024 has less than a week to live. This is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go if you would like to get uh, two bonus podcasts each and every week. Uh, You're going to need it. These days, things are moving fast. Things are moving very, very fast. It's not only political stuff. It's also legal stuff. $3. You know, if you would buy me a coffee every week. Then you can get two bonus episodes. Said simple. Take politics seriously.com. The Supreme Court has intervened in Donald Trump's federal trial concerning his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. That effectively delays the proceedings for several months. This delay comes as the court has agreed to expedite the consideration of Trump's argument that his position as a former president grants him immunity from prosecution. With a one-page order issued on Wednesday, the Supreme Court scheduled oral arguments for the week of April 22nd, keeping the trial court's activities on hold in the interim. This decision did not come with any dissenting opinions or additional clarifications from the high court. The pause in the trial is a significant setback for special counsel Jack Smith, who aims to prosecute Trump for four felony charges related to efforts to undermine the 2020 presidential election. The Supreme Court's decision to freeze pre-trial procedures dampens the likelihood of bringing Trump to trial within the year, depending on how swiftly the Supreme Court reaches a decision post-arguments. And assuming it dismisses Trump's claim to immunity, the trial concerning the election-related charges could potentially proceed later in the summer, if not into the fall. And so, we now have... Less of a likelihood that all but what I think legal scholars would agree is the weakest of the Trump trials, the Manhattan Alvin Bragg Stormy Daniels redux. Looks like that's going to be the only one that happens on time. We're still dealing with everything that's happening with Fonnie Willis in Fulton County. The judge in the Mar-a-Lago Docs case in South Florida doesn't seem to be in much of a hurry. And now the Supreme Court is holding up the January 6th case. And so that's not going to be able to proceed until after the immunity uh, claim is heard. What is more and more likely is that we are not going to see a conviction in any but that New York case, because that New York case just write it in stone. I mean, it's a Manhattan jury. Donald Trump has faced two Manhattan juries in civil trials. One was E. Jean Carroll and the other was the, the money case, and and both of those came back. I, I can't imagine that this one would not. But does that affect things? The Biden campaign desperately from a political perspective, would like to run convicted felon Donald Trump. They would like to make convicted felon the permanent prefix to Donald Trump's name. But it doesn't matter if it's in a case that not as many people take it seriously. We'll see. End of an era. Senate Minority Leader, Cocaine, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> announced his decision to step down as the leader of the Republican conference, marking the end of his tenure as the longest serving leader in Senate history. Since 2007, McConnell has been at the forefront of the GOP in the Senate, a role he will relinquish at the end of his current term. His announcement was made during a Senate floor speech where he emphasized the importance of recognizing the right time to move on. An election for his successor is scheduled for November, with the new leader taking over in January. McConnell's departure was met with respect from both sides of the aisle, including Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, highlighting McConnell's reputation as an effective strategist and influential lawmaker. McConnell's legacy includes significant legislative achievements and strategic Supreme Court appointments that have shaped American law and politics. Notably, his decision to block Obama's Supreme Court nominee in 2016 led to the appointment of three conservative justices under President Trump, significantly tilting the court to the right. McConnell's influence within the GOP, however, has waned as the party aligns more closely with Trump, with whom McConnell has a strained relationship. Despite this, discussions have been held between the uh, aides of both men, including efforts to secure McDonald's or sorry McConnell's endorsement of Trump for re-election, and that looks to happen in the uh, the near term. McConnell's health and personal losses, including the recent death of his sister-in-law has played a role in his decision to step down. Speculation about his successor begins. The three Johns are considered the leading candidates. That is Cornyn, Thune, and Barrasso. But they will have to contend with this new party. And, uh, you know, Republican leadership turning over and over and over. The loss of McConnell is a big deal. Uh, McConnell was a steady rock in a really, really roiling sea over the last several years, but there's no doubt that he and Trump have had, uh, you know, their relationship has seen better days. And finally, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican from Mississippi, halted the progression of a, a Democratic-sponsored bill aimed at ensuring nationwide access to in vitro fertilization, marking the first major federal dispute over fertility care allowing a con- uh, following a controversial decision by an Alabama court. The court granted legal personhood to frozen embryos, igniting the debate over implications for IVF. Hyde-Smith criticized the bill for overreaching and potentially subjecting religious and pro-life organizations to lawsuits, arguing it undermines the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The Democratic response, led by Senator Tammy Duckworth, who sponsored the bill and is a mother of two daughters conceived via IVF, underscores the personal stakes involved and accuses Republicans of hypocrisy. Duckworth plans to push for a traditional roll call vote on the bill, despite recognizing the challenges posed by the Senate's PAC schedule. Democrats are leveraging the issue in their electoral strategy with the DNC launching billboards and ad campaigns, linking the IVF ruling to broader Republican policies on reproductive rights. Meanwhile, Republicans aren't perturbed by the controversy as have defended their stance of emphasizing states' rights and predicting that the Alabama legislature will address this issue themselves. The ongoing debate reflects a complex struggle within the GOP as it continues to distance itself from the evangelical movement, and toward, well, whatever Donald Trump wants, whatever chungus wants, chungus gets, an IVF, a little chungus wants you. That's the reality right now. If Trump's into it, then get on it. And you should get on our Patreon, takepoliticseriously.com, $3 tier, gets you two bonus episodes each and every week. And now to our friend, Ryan Macbeth. Joining us now is a returning guest, somebody that got a lot of uh, really, really great feedback for us the last time that he was on, Ryan Macbeth, an open source intelligence analyst. Welcome back to the show,
1: Ryan. Justin, thank you so much for inviting me back on here. I love coming on your show. So uh, I I, uh, thank you for the pleasantries, and it is uh, equally
0: delightful that you are back on. And we're going to be talking about some fairly grim subject matter uh, for this interview, because obviously we are uh, looking at a lot of uh, violence in in the international stage. Uh, They are very much playing into where we are Politically, right now, and specifically in both of the major theaters of uh, uh, America's ev- involvement in foreign affairs, are questions of war crimes, and it has largely become something that has become a part of domestic politics. Not only with uh, you know the administration's involvement in in both theaters in Ukraine and in Gaza, uh, but also just broadly, and so. What I wanted to have you on for is to just have, from your perspective, a, a data dump on the general term. What are, when we say war crimes, what are war crimes? Because we know war is hell. We know that horrifying things that, that we would never want to happen in a time of peace happen during war. But we also know that some things cross that line. So where would we start from a novice's
1: perspective on understanding what a war crime is. So there would be three parts to this. There would be the very base minimum, which is called the Geneva Conventions, and there were four of them. And this was originally kind of started by the Red Cross. Uh, I believe it was uh, during the uh, British uh, incursion in Crimea where um, this, uh, this guy who was, uh, I believe he was a traveling reporter, he was looking at some atrocities that had been committed. And he thought, oh my God, there's got to be a better way to do this. So that there is the Geneva Convention, which is essentially the minimum standard for behavior. <clears throat> then there is something called the LOAC, or the Law of Armed Conflict. The Law of Armed Conflict is the guiding spirit and the general direction that countries have developed, essentially norms of how they would behave in conflict. So you have the Geneva Convention as the base, and the LOAC sits on top of that. And on top of the LOAC sits something called the RO, or rules of engagement. Not every military might issue a RO or rules of engagement, but essentially rules of engagement are rules that are given to soldiers before they go into combat. And these rules of engagement might change. For example, while in Iraq, it was pretty common to see vehicles with a sign on the back that said, stay back 100 meters or you will be shot. Okay. It said that in English and in Arabic. So that was part of your row, your rules of engagement. If a vehicle comes within 100 meters, you may shoot them, whether you think they're, uh, whether they're acting, uh, in a threatening manner or not. Now, if you violate the rules of engagement, if you violate the the uh, LOAC or if you violate the Geneva Convention, that could be considered a war crime. Although the RO, the rules of engagement, might only be considered a crime by your country. Gotcha. Violating the uh, Geneva Convention or the LOAC would be considered an international crime. So before we get into some of that specifically...
0: I want to ask you about the general spirit of, of of this. Are are these agreements made as a way of saying, well, we're going to get past these conflicts as ugly and bloody as they might be faster if these level, this level of behavior is broadly not tolerated, or there is some mechanism to punish those that engage in it? Or is it just a a Western ideal of, hey, this is this is an evolved way for us to deal with? Already bloody and violent conflicts:
1: I think it's a way of codifying uh, a sort of martial spirit that has uh, been part of the military for hundreds of years. Um, there is, a, um, there is a, a certain term called the honors of War, which was actually kind of, I believe it was codified into the, the law of armed conflict. Uh, honors of war is where you might let a surrendering enemy uh, leave. Uh, their uh, their uh, fortification, and they march out under arms mm-hmm. with you standing at attention, saluting them for their bravery while they were fighting you. I, I believe the last time this was done was uh, during World War II, uh, and it is still a thing. It is it is a thing that people can do. So I the, I believe kind of what we're going for with these rules. Is that it establishes and codifies a level of behavior that professional soldiers are expected to adhere to when engaging in conflict. So, with any rules
0: comes attendant punishments. You mentioned mm-hmm. rules of engagement are are probably the most specific level of a, 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 a war that could be considered a war crime, but that is punishable to the side that has uh, issued these rules of engagement. That any actor within acting uh, under this banner should be punished for it. The other two are international. So if one is self-policing, what are the mechanisms to punish uh, a, a, a country, a soldier, a, a general, somebody who commits a war crime under the LOAC or the Geneva Convention?
1: So under the Geneva Convention and the LOAC, you can still be punished uh, by your host nation mm-hmm. if you committed a war crime that wasn't part of the, the let's say the rules of engagement. You chose to commit some kind of war crime. Let's say looting. Looting might not be in the rules of engagement because yeah. the rules of engagement tend to be about how you're going to shoot your rifle. But it's still, uh, I believe, they actually call it pillage in the uh, Geneva Convention. They kind of use older yeah. terms, these more uh, 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 these uh, uh, older uh, legal terms. But uh, pillage, I believe, is what they refer to it as. So if you if you stole stuff, if you were looting. You might still be punished by your own country. Now, if you are a soldier in a country that doesn't tend to respect the Geneva Convention, you might never get punished for that. Gotcha. But if you lose, then there is a chance that you will get tried by the winning power and, or you might face a war crimes trial in The Hague. So those, those would be the two, the two ways out or the two uh, methods of, um, of dealing with someone who committed war.
0: That these, this, this this is the punishment element of it. This, this is where you would face uh, justice for crimes that are, that are committed.
1: Yes. And if, if now, if you don't happen to lose and the host nation decides not to pursue you, then it's certainly possible you might never be brought up on charges and you Get away with it. So th- these are so often- this is
0: still an international agreement, which tends to be fast and loose because not not every country thinks it's in their best interest to play along uh, with every international agreement. And you can see the example of that in, in the U.N., which uh, is, is, is oftentimes a lot more bark than bite in terms of uh, in, in terms of punishment for for various different elements.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, I think the one thing that has sort of changed a little bit is that now with instant communication, you can actually send images of war crimes being committed all across the world. Yeah. And that if you are that power that is invading another country, uh, that could really be a black eye on your reputation. But on the other hand, some of those countries could provide false evidence of. The other side's war crimes, and I, I can foresee a point one day where video evidence uh, isn't even going to be able to be accepted in court because with the advent of AI or with all the disinformation out there, uh, it is very easy to trick people to fool people into thinking they're seeing something, especially when they don't understand exactly what they're looking at.
0: Can you give me an example of somebody that has been tried for war crimes and and Lin- yes, uh, uh, Lindy England?
1: Okay. Lindy England, private, first-class Lindy England. She was a soldier in a military police unit that was at the Abu Ghraib prison. And uh, not making an excuse here whatsoever that for those users who don't know, when the United States first invaded Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom, there was a prison called Abu Ghraib, which was an Iraqi-run prison the U.S. took over that particular prison, and they would send detainees to Abu Ghraib because, hey, free prison, we're just going to repurpose it. And some prisoners were treated very poorly. And by very poorly, I don't mean they were uh, smacked around a little bit. Uh, I, I would say for Arab men to be stripped naked... And looked at by women would be very uh, it would be very humiliating. It's humiliating for everyone. You don't have to be arrogant. Yeah. Right? Uh, some men were placed in stress positions. Some men were forced to lie on each other in a naked pile with bags over their head. One person was forced to stand on a box, an MRE ration box, and told, if you step down off this box, you're going to be electrocuted. Uh, there were men who were... Um, uh, not attacked by dogs, but threatened with attack by dogs. Uh, there were men who were forced to, uh, I, am I allowed to say the word masturbate? sure. I don't yes. know if you're- I think, I think we, were, are,
0: we are in a very clinical discussion for which specificity okay. matters. Yes.
1: There were men who were, who were forced to masturbate. There, from what I understand, reading the report, there was one case of a woman who uh, was uh, engaged in um, relations with an MP, a military policeman's dog. Okay. Um, this is not okay. Yes. None of that is okay. But, uh, one of the people who engaged in these behaviors was a private named Lindy England, and she was punished, I believe it was two years, in Leavenworth for her crimes. And now, uh, you know, she's in her 40s, I believe, can't hold a job. Everybody knows who she is. Her, you know, her life is ruined. And, um, there was nobody, apparently nobody was, was watching the uh was watching these soldiers to say like hey you need to stop yeah we can't do this and what's even worse is that the soldiers took pictures of themselves doing and yeah this and, and and for those of you who are it's crazy now that mm. i'm realizing
0: that this scandal might be something that happened too long ago for some of our listeners but yeah. this was a massive international scandal and among the the moments of uh uh, uh true tipping points in uh america's understanding of how uh, uh, the military was pursuing the war in, in Iraq, that, that, and, and, uh, uh, waterboarding were probably the two mainstream, yeah, uh, uh, moments where, where things were going too far as, uh, from the domestic yeah. perspective.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure they're doing any waterboarding in Abu Ghraib. It just wasn't, they weren't the kind of prisoners that, yeah. you know, I don't know if they were set up for, to do that. Uh, and I also think a lot of those, uh, military police, now, some of them didn't have training in corrections. Uh, the army used to have a corrections MOS or a corrections military occupational specialty, a corrections job. And I believe that job was just folded into the regular military police uh, MOS. Um, so they, they didn't have a lot of supervision. They didn't know what they were doing. And there were probably intel guys that were edging them on. Like, yeah, yeah, do this. It's okay, I'm an intel guy. Yeah. It's Is okay. that in the report? It's not okay. <laughs> It's not OK. Is that in the report that there were intel guys egging them on? That's that's my personal opinion. Gotcha. Because okay. I don't I don't think these MPs thought of this stuff themselves. I think some of this were, were was intel. was fed, fed to them by somebody. But they, it was fed to them because some of this is really creative. Like, hey, let's get this guy to stand on a box. Yeah, Like that. that's not. Like who thinks like you have to be pretty messed up in that? That's not that's not something that you're coming up with
0: in a piggly wiggly parking lot. That is that
1: is yeah. It's not yeah. Someone I think someone else was manipulating these people, but there was no supervision. There, yeah. there should have been,
0: and ultimately, and these pictures there, became an international scandal. And the person that was probably the most animated in the pictures was Lindy England. Was Lindy England, and she yeah. and she faced consequences for that. Now, would that be just to get back to our definitional element of yeah. that? Would that be a violation of the rules of engagement, the the Loac, or or the Geneva Convention?
1: Be a violation of the Loac and the, uh, the rules of engagement tend to be about shooting Conflict. your rifle. okay? Like when you can actually fire and when you can't. Um. And let's say it could also be about like, hey, if the insurgents run into a mosque, you're not allowed to shoot at that mosque. You have to stop, and you have to call the Iraqi police and the Iraqi police or Iraqi army. They take out the mosque. Got gotcha. you. Um, it could be about that. So that that particular event, uh, Abu Ghraib, would be a violation of the Geneva Convention because you're not allowed to put prisoners in humiliating situations, and it would be a violation of the law of armed conflict. There is nothing. That's in either of those books, the Geneva Conventions or the law of armed conflict that say that is okay.
0: Yeah. And it's not. So she faced punishment from the United States largely because the newly reconstituted Iraq did not want to bring her to the Hague or bring those people to the Hague.
1: So typically uh, when the US, and this is actually a huge problem, there is another thing called a SOFA agreement. Now at the time, SOFA means status of forces. Okay. So that's actually one of the reasons we left Iraq. Iraq did not have the ability to bring anybody uh, under charges at The Hague because they, they didn't even have a government. They were a basket case in 2003, 2004. Yeah. One of the reasons the US left Iraq was that Iraq... Uh, wanted to be able to charge soldiers for war crimes if they felt those soldiers should be charged, and the U.S. said, "No, we're not. We're not doing that." And that's why we left Iraq in 2010. Now we came back. Yeah. But uh, if there are U.S. soldiers in any country on earth, that country has what's called a SOFA agreement, a Status of Forces Agreement with that local host nation, and the SOFA agreement spells out everything that is the responsibility of the host nation and everything that is the responsibility of the American government. So if a soldier commits a crime, the SOFA agreement might say that if a soldier commits a crime, that soldier is to be tried by the American government. But they can specify the crime. One of the things that you see quite frequently is Marines and sailors on the island of Okinawa in Japan, they they might commit a rape in Okinawa and because our status of forces agreement says that the U.S. will try these these uh, Marines or sailors if they commit a rape, the o- Okinawans get very upset when this happens because to them, the, the sailor just poof, he's he's just gone. But right he, he doesn't country. face he's local. He doesn't
0: face local justice for he being on justice. Okinawan property when this crime happens.
1: Correct. And maybe he did face justice back in the U.S. or maybe there was enough evidence to charge him. But yeah, do you want justice or do you want vengeance? Sure, right? Like, what's the, you know, what's this? Because if you want to live under laws, you have to agree that what is justice might not always make you happy. Yeah. Right? Uh, But also the SOFA agreement covers things like driver's licenses. Do you have to get a local driver's license when you come Mm. to that country? Stuff like that. So SOFA agreement, it can be basically anything from whether a, a soldier is allowed to bring personal weapons to that country... To, to shoot at local target ranges, to your driver's licenses, to uh, 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 how soldiers might be charged if they commit a crime,
0: and so. but those are more along the lines of if you put a base, a, a foreign base or if, something, yeah. in a another country, and now you have to deal with the logistics of all that. I, I, I want to get into two issues uh, broadly that have come up a lot, specifically both in Ukraine. And Gaza, and one are protected classes of people that uh, uh, wind up dead in war, and the other is the specificity of where something is being attacked. Let, let Let's start with the the uh, protected classes mm-hmm. first. Uh, in any of those, the Geneva Convention, LOAC, uh, 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 you know, or, or rules of engagement, are they broadly understood to be classes of people? Let's say women and children specifically that are absolutely no matter what off limits. If you are found to be attacking or to have deliberately killed a specific class of person, that is a war crime.
1: Well, it's not just class. It's also infrastructure. OK, so what would you you would consider a protected class is any medical personnel could be considered a, a protected class. Police can also be considered a protected class. Um local police are not supposed to be disarmed uh because they someone still has to provide local security, although you might patrol with those local police. And if they're giving you any trouble, you know, all right, well, now, now it's on. Uh and civilians. So civilians, lo- uh, local police, uh you could also say emergency services fire mm-hmm. and um and uh, medical personnel, they, they would be a protected class. There are protected buildings, things like hospitals, uh, uh, cultural sites such as churches, and sites of major infrastructure. Uh, One one example might be dams. Things like dams are not supposed to be destroyed or targeted. Now, if any of those particular sites, let's say a, a school or a mosque or whatever, is being used as a military base, they lose that special protection. And that's one of the things you've been seeing in Gaza. Yeah. Where you'll have, and this is actually, believe it or not, something I actually don't agree with. Where Israelis will go into a mosque and they'll go, Oh, there was an arms room here, or there was a um, there was a base here, command control center here. We're gonna blow up this whole mosque. Now, explosives are heavy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're freaking heavy. And, you know, so it, it, it's, there. I don't, I do not believe Israel is doing this for fun. They are doing this because they genuinely want to get rid of a particular command and control center. And I think some of it, it also is also saying, look, if you decide to do this, we're going to blow up your mosque and you're going to have to rebuild it. And I, I believe the American military would not do something like that. But when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're trying to win hearts and minds. We might clear out the insurgents. Yeah. We might destroy the equipment in that particular room. We won't necessarily bring down the entire mosque. So it's kind of a different theory of uh, of operations um, that you're seeing. But there are protected buildings and. Uh, but sure but protect-
0: as as you mentioned, there are carve outs that uh, would obviously lead to rationale and decision making in 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 the field. And so if it is your claim, like the IDF has claimed that. Hospitals or mosques are being used as active military bases, then that is their justification for going outside of mm-hmm. of that. Now, we, we get to a question like Iraq, where mm-hmm. uh, uh, it is hard for Iraq to come to an international uh, uh, court because their government was a mess. Uh, just strictly looking at this as a a, a procedural issue yeah. if uh, somebody wanted to bring war crimes charges for let's say exactly that blowing up a mosque or a, a hospital against Israel does it have to be i mean in this case it would be hamas which which effectively runs gaza and ran gaza beforehand would it have to be can it be somebody else from the international community or does it have to be the organization that is running the area that something like this happens
1: That's actually probably a better question for a lawyer.
0: Okay. Gotcha. (laughs) Then we can, we can move on. We can move on. Uh, uh, so let's get to targeting because that is, that is, that is something else that not only, and I guess it, there is some shared DNA here between these two questions of if, uh, something that is in a protected class is actually acting as something else, then there are different rules of engagement. Uh, when it comes to targeting certain areas, what
1: are some of the, the the rationale that goes into that? Well, one would be military necessity. So, in the LOAC and the uh, and the Geneva Convention, you're not supposed to you're only supposed to destroy as much as you need to destroy to accomplish the mission. Yeah. So, if you don't need to destroy a bridge, don't destroy that bridge. You're not you're not supposed to destroy targets just for the heck of it. So that's, that's kind of the general guiding spirit when it comes to targeting. And also don't forget that weapon systems have a dollar value attached to them. Mm-hmm. And in modern day conflict, if you use a particular weapon system that you may not be able to get a replacement immediately. Okay. There is a, there, I'm sure you've heard there is a backlog of artillery production, um, there are, in some, in some cases, Israel has run out or has come close to running out of precision guided kits for their bombs. So you want to make sure that what you're hitting not only has military value, but is worth expending that particular piece of ordinance on. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of number one when it, when it comes to targeting. Um, so you're taking that into account. And you're also taking into account, are there civilians near the area? Or is there, or is there a protected building near the area? Uh, If Daddy El Badi is in a hospital, and uh, we we know that Daddy El Badi is a major militia commander, um, but there's also other civilians in that hospital. Is it worth dropping a bomb through a window where we know Daddy El Badi is? All right, so let's go through the process. Well, is it going to kill Daddy El Badi? Yes. How many civilians is it going to kill? All right, there might there might actually be a number where it says, all right, well, if it's 10 to 15, you know, zero to 15 civilians that this can kill, we have to get permission from the brigade commander. If it's 15 to 30, we have to get permission from the division commander. If it's above 30, we have to get permission from the theater commander or the White House to strike this particular target. Um, or you might do some weapon where you say, all right, Um, Instead of using a 500-pound bomb, let's use uh, a 250-pound bomb. Let's use a smaller warhead or let's use a Hellfire missile to try to take this guy out, uh, which will eliminate the collateral damage. So that's another thing you kind of want to think. Are there other targets around that particular target that could be affected uh, by an explosion? Is there a a school nearby? What time do the kids get out of school? Yeah. Uh, one of uh, one of the things that I've, I've heard people talk about um, in, in Gaza is they say that, that people have been killed while sleeping yeah. by Israeli bombs. And that is possible. But Israel, for the most part, is they tend to be bombing during the day, mainly because during the day, people are out of their homes and looking for food. Yeah. And if, if you've kind of wondered like why isn't Israel you know giving aid to well in some ways that could be a tactic because by making people spend their days looking for food it gets them out of those buildings. Yeah. And Hamas doesn't have the, the the doesn't need to go out looking for food. They have supplies stashed away. So now that allows you to safely target places and minimize collateral damage and minimize civilians killed. So that might be a thing as well, uh, looking at what time it is and when is the best time to drop a piece of ordinance to minimize the amount of, of people that have to die.
0: And all of that is, uh, uh, you know, a very, very ugly calculation that you have to make, uh, you know, in in war is being made, are, are being made uh, during this uh, specific incursion. And that's, you know, from from my perspective, there is you know, obviously a, a empathetic element that you look at any kind of war uh, beyond war, just any kind of uh, a targeted attack on, on any area that, that happens throughout our, our world. The, our world is, you know, a very, very brutal place when you, when you look uh, uh, throughout all of the hotspots that exist and, and then you know, you get into the specifics and that's why thank you so much for coming on, but uh, it, it just has, uh, it's one of those things that I want to get a, a better sense of. Is just what do we actually mean when when it when it comes to these things? Because war is hell, war is ugly, war is brutal, and uh, uh, I, I don't know where those lines those lines are. But but I, I greatly thank you sharing your, oper- your your expertise and just giving us a baseline primer.
1: Oh absolutely Justin. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh Ryan please tell everybody where uh
0: they can get more of your work.
1: Uh well you can find me at ryanmcbeth.substack.com you can connect with me on Twitter at ryanmcbeth. I'm also on Instagram as the real ryanmcbeth and I do have a website that I update once in a while it's ryanmcbeth.com. Uh uh what what are some of the things that you've uh, posted about recently? Oh boy. Uh Recently, I've uh, I posted about the, uh, the this Russian um, AWACS or Airborne uh, Warning or Airborne uh, Control Center. Uh, essentially, an AWACS is a plane that uh, that has a big radar dish on it, and it flies in circles above the battlefield and uh, uses its radar to find enemy uh, enemy aircraft and direct friendly aircraft toward the enemy aircraft, and also maybe maybe manage the battle space. Well, I believe the second A-50, the second Russian A-50 was shot down by Ukraine in 30 days. And they didn't build a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. I believe they have between three and seven A-50s remaining. And that's an issue because number one, there's about 15 crew on an A-50 on one of these AWACS okay. planes. And uh, so now you have 15 professionals who were highly educated and knew how to manage the battle space, all those guys are gone. yeah, they're dead. you also have one fewer aircraft, and it makes it more difficult to perform maintenance on the existing aircraft. so if you want to perform 24-hour operations, it's a lot easier to do that with seven aircraft than it is with three mm. so that that is a major event uh, it, it's uh, it, uh, Russia is suffering this death of a thousand cuts in Ukraine, where you know, when you take away an AWACS, you take away their ability to do targeting, uh, weapon uh, uh, surveillance, deconfliction, which is a major thing. Deconfliction is where uh, you tell your surface stair missile batteries, hey, uh, we have friendly jets coming in from the east. Don't shoot for the next two minutes. And deconfliction is hard. We screw it up. Yeah. Uh Russia has had major problems doing deconfliction. It's a lot harder to do deconfliction when you don't have an AWACS circling above the battlefield. So that is, uh, one thing Ukraine is so good at, it is shaping the battlefield. Okay. Forming what's called shaping operations. They are great at that, at setting themselves up for the next success. So I recently did a video, recently did a video about that. And uh, I also recently, uh, I did a video on technicals. Okay. Uh, technicals are. I'm sure you've watched Black Hawk Down. You've seen pickup trucks and someone bolts a machine gun to the back. I did a video that's all about technicals. Oh wow! And it gets into the history of technicals. Though so during uh, the the technicals were actually first used. I like, really want to go all the way back. The Rat Patrol in World War II. The, the British Rat Patrol rolling around the desert yeah. in in, uh, in jeeps. That was. Those were technicals. Kind of. right? And uh the Chad Libya war, uh, when Libya or when Chad was fighting Libya, America and France and Egypt and Sudan actually said, "Hey, do you want tanks?" And uh, the Chadians were like, "Ah, eh, we're good. We're, we just need pickup trucks. we can bolt machine guns to them." Yeah, they started becoming called technicals in, um, uh, during uh, Somalia, during the famine in Somalia, and aid agencies were attempting to uh, feed Somalis because you couldn't put on an expense report, bribe to warlord. But <laughs> so they would put the word technical payments. Gotcha, gotcha. Bribe to warlord. Yeah. And uh, those vehicles began to be called technicals. And that's, that's what we know them as now. And that's what we call them
0: today. Uh, well, folks, if you want more of this kind of expertise, and uh, specifically in times of war, which we are in right now, I think that it is tremendously, tremendously important. That and the misinformation work that I think that you've done since uh, I've, I've started uh, being a regular consumer of your work is very, very, very well worth it. Uh, go ahead and find Mr. Ryan McBeth. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to thank our friend Ryan Macbeth, you can go to letter letterx, number three, guest.com. Follow, find, and share clips of the show. TikTok, Justin R. Young. Instagram, Justin R. Young. YouTube, Politics, Politics, Politics. And our email is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. And my personal one is Justin R. Young. On Twitch, I'm px3live. And you can share this podcast at, or find it with your friends, family, and clergy. PX3podcast.com. Hey, a one-time donation. If you like the show, you just want to hit me off with a little five spot. Say, hey, thank you. PayPal is paypal.me slash jury. Venmo money isn't real. We know it. Scientifically proven. If you have money in your Venmo, it's not real money. You might as well prove it by giving it to me. Justin-Young-20. My cash app is PX3Cash, and you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. Post Office Box fifteen thirty one eighty four, Austin, Texas 787-15. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184, Austin, Texas 787 You can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we missed on our free schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Sam, John, Niemeister, Edwin, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checker, Sarah Genie, Spider, Matthew, Dr. G., Dustin, Brad, D laser, Nick, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, Utah Jimmy, Montana, the Jen, Alo. D really? Andrew, Lisa, Fat Tony's PJs from New York. Devon, the CFP, Gloria Young, my mom. Grayzone, Peapaw, Jay, Neil, Yield Pinball Shop. John, DP4, Bungo. Neil, his nerdiness Charles, Audrey stole Adler's spot, Darren, Idris, Arslanian, Berkeley, Steven, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's Delightful Demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, and Paul. You want your name? Do you? On the show? During the campaign? Come on, baby. Come on down. Let's let's, let's do it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Hope you guys have a great week. It's uh, uh, hopefully good weather where you are. Had a little bit of a warm uh, a warm pop. Settled back to where it's uh, supposed to be. Maybe go see Dune. Reviews are good. Huh? Spice must flow. Till then. Israel pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Oh three. three.